From the State Capitol, WFSU Public Media brings you Capitol Report. Lawmakers will be back in Tallahassee on Monday. One item on their agenda, Governor DeSantis's proposed takeover of the Magic Kingdom. It's not right to put one company in this special status, and so what we're really doing is just doing equal treatment, and I think it's exactly what we said we would do. Also this week, will a massive expansion of Florida's school vouchers essentially defund and depopulate the state's traditional public schools? I really don't think we're going to see the mass exodus of public schools that, that everybody is claiming. We'll also get the latest on a plan to allow Florida gun owners to carry their weapons in public without state-issued permits, and we'll discover how some teachers are continuing to discuss black history in their classrooms. I'm Tom Flanagan, and this is Capitol Report. We've been talking for weeks about all the things expected to happen when the Florida legislature convenes on March 7th for this year's session, but it looks like lawmakers will be back in Tallahassee a lot sooner than that. Earlier today, Florida House Speaker Paul Renner sent out an email announcing a special session for this coming Monday, February 6th. He said this was happening in coordination with the governor's office and state Senate President Kathleen Pasadomo. It seems lawmakers will be packing a lot of issues into their get-together. The first thing will be setting aside more resources to help relief and recovery for the areas hit last year by Hurricanes Ian and Nicole. Second on the list is empowering the Office of Statewide Prosecutor to take on cases involving crimes about federal or state elections as well as violations of state ballot petition law. Next up, a bill to facilitate the transportation of undocumented immigrants coming into the Florida Keys, out of Florida. And then there are three bills connected to special districts, the largest and best publicized being the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which is the 25,000 acres in central Florida now under control of the Disney Corporation. The state would essentially take over governance of that area while making sure local taxpayers wouldn't wind up paying Disney's debts. Two other bills would keep intact the Sunshine Water Control District in South Florida and the East Point Water and Sewer District in northwest Florida. Otherwise, these would go away as a result of the Disney takeover. Looks like it'll be another busy week at the Florida Capitol. Governor Ron DeSantis is acknowledging that a plan to remove income caps from the state school voucher program could result in some public schools losing that revenue. Len Hatter reports one state policy group has put the cost of the expansion at around $4 billion in the first year. The governor's comments come as the state's Republican leaders are pushing a measure to provide a way for nearly all students in the state to become eligible for either an education savings account or a private tuition scholarship. The proposal is called House Bill 1, and as of now, its financial impact on the state is unclear. We don't have any projections, but, but like I said, public schools are really good. And if it works best for the child, then it's going to work best for the child. That's the bill's sponsor, Republican Representative Kaylee Tuck. Even though the state's number crunchers have not weighed in on the price tag yet, the Florida Policy Center has done some math. The center says the price would go up to about $4 billion in the first year under the expansion. 
Here's the Policy Center's senior researcher, Mary McKillop. These are estimates. It may be much higher. We're just trying to give some information so that people can say, wait, before this gets rushed through, let's stop and look at how this could really cause some huge trouble down the line with having to come up with all these dollars that are not being accounted for. First, some background. There are two primary school choice scholarship programs right now. One is the longstanding corporate tax scholarship program, which is funded through donations from private businesses. It does not use state money. The other is the Family Empowerment Scholarship, which is funded by the state. The Florida Policy Institute's figure is based on that FES program. Right now, there are about 102,000 students who receive FES funding. The current spend is about $800 million. The Policy Institute figures in the first year under the expansion, about 12% of the state's 2.5 million public school students will likely tap into the program. McKillop came up with the $4 billion figure by adding the current usage to her future projections. In Florida, money follows the student. And that means that if that many students leave, well, their state funding goes away too. If new revenue is not found to cover these costs, the public school districts will end up with significantly less revenue to fund the remaining public school students, which we're estimating would be a drop in state aid per pupil of over $900. I think it'll be a modest impact. Honestly, I, I really don't think we're going to see the mass exodus of public schools that, that everybody is claiming. I really do think we have good public schools in our area, and the bill is simply about providing parents choice, not taking away from public education at all. That's the bill sponsor, Representative Kaylee Tuck again. The state will get an update on the potential costs of the bill fairly soon, but Governor Ron DeSantis acknowledges public schools could see a funding decrease. You're taking somebody who may be in a charter school or a school district, moving them, and you're just moving the money with the student. DeSantis is a supporter of school choice. He recently signed off on several expansions of the program since he's been in office. This year's plan, though, marks the biggest change in the program since it began. And the governor expressed some reservations about that plan, specifically when it comes to awarding scholarships to private school and homeschool students who had not previously been eligible for them. So the fiscal would be, are you letting private school students then qualify for scholarships when they already weren't? That obviously would be, would be a fiscal to the state of Florida. I'm Len Hatter. This week, Republicans in the Florida legislature unveiled a bill that would allow people to carry concealed weapons without a permit. But that's out of step with public opinion on the matter. Democrats are raising alarms about what this would mean for public safety. But with a super minority in the legislature, their hands are largely tied. Valerie Crowder has more. The bill's proponents describe it as constitutional carry. Its opponents, however have a different interpretation. This is not constitutional carry. This is untrained carry. Uh, We have to be very clear and specific as to what the legislation actually does. 
That's Broward Democratic Representative Christine Hunchovsky on a call with reporters soon after the measure was filed. Removing the training to make you a competent firearm carrier doesn't sound like a great public safety measure to me. And this alone is a step in the wrong direction. Right now, a permit is mandatory to carry a concealed weapon in Florida. Gun owners who want a license must pay a fee and complete a safety training course with a certified instructor. The Republican-sponsored bill would do away with those requirements. During a recent press conference, House Speaker Paul Renner explained why he supports it. Central to the idea of freedom is the right that we can defend ourselves against physical attack as well as defend those that we love. Democrats are trying to steer the state in another direction. They filed legislation that would require gun sellers to provide buyers with brochures explaining the safe handling, use, and storage of firearms, where guns are off-limits, and Florida self-defense laws. And Democratic Representative Dan Daly has pushed for background checks on ammunition sales for years, but his bill has never received a hearing. In this climate, particularly where you just saw the House Speaker stand up and, and, and push permitless carry, I don't think these bills will um, get a hearing. And that's a shame, right? That, that, is, um, that is a political game that is putting Floridians um, at risk. And this is just another example of it. 25 states have passed legislation allowing people to carry guns in public without a permit. Nationwide, polling suggests most Americans oppose permitless carry laws. And a recent joint survey by the University of South Florida and Florida International University shows most of the state's voters want stricter gun laws. Still, permitless carry is likely to become law in Florida this year, as Republican legislative leaders and Governor Ron DeSantis have already expressed their support. I'm Valerie Crowder. Coming up on Capitol Report, we'll hear from Andrew Warren, the Hillsborough County prosecutor suspended by Governor DeSantis. You know, at the end of the day, the judge basically pointed out that the only thing that the governor got right in the executive order about me was basically my name. Hurricane experts conclude storms are getting worse. If you have any doubt, consider Hurricane Ian. So Hurricane Ian moved half the normal rate it was twice as large as a normal hurricane as far as geographical extent. And despite all the uncertainty about what can and can't be said about race in Florida's public schools, teachers are still determined to teach those lessons. To open up the minds and the hearts of, of black students to get them to understand exactly who they are because I truly feel like if you don't know who you are, then you won't know where you're going. Governor Ron DeSantis rolled out his proposed state spending plan this week, but like its predecessor passed last year, a portion of the governor's budget contains some money from the feds. 
Defending Florida's hold on remaining federal stimulus money, the governor is rejecting a call by U.S. Senator Rick Scott for state and local governments to return unused funds. Back on January 20th, Scott sent a letter about unspent stimulus dollars to governors and mayors. In the letter, Scott, who was DeSantis's predecessor as governor, you may recall, said the funds did not help families in need, but instead are being used by state and local governments as a slush fund for unrelated pet projects. After outlining his proposed nearly $115 billion state budget, DeSantis questioned how much of a dent it would make in the national debt if Florida returned the remaining $100 to $200 million worth of stimulus money. He then quickly turned to criticize federal spending. Why don't they get their house in order? Why don't they stop spending so much of our money? Florida Tax Watch has reported the state received $13.4 billion from the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act of 2020 and the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. Suspended Hillsborough County State Attorney Andrew Warren sued Governor Ron DeSantis for removing him from office. Warren had signed a pledge to avoid enforcing a state law that bans abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Last month, a judge decided the governor broke the law when he suspended the prosecutor, but the court lacked the power to reinstate Warren. In the Deeper Dive with Dara Cam podcast from City and State Florida, Warren breaks down the judge's ruling and why he feels vindicated. Here's an excerpt. Help us understand a little bit the legal analysis, the judge's legal analysis. For some people, they might be confused how, okay, well, if he broke, if he violated the federal constitution, why doesn't the judge have the authority to say that the governor was wrong and reinstate you? Yeah, it's a great question. And and just to go back to a moment, I, you know, to you quoting from the order, um, you know, the judge said, that there wasn't even a hint of misconduct. As you said, it wasn't even a close call. You know, this, these are not my words. These are the judge's findings that I was suspended uh, for political motivation because of my association with the Democratic Party, because of the things that I stand for, because that I believe in reforming and improving our criminal justice system. And as the judge said, that doesn't fit with DeSantis's political agenda. I mean, these were the judge's conclusions. So, you know, at the end of the day, the judge basically pointed out that the only thing that the governor got right in the executive order about me was basically my name and my position. Everything else he was just was completely false. Well, um, before we go on to the legal analysis, let's talk a little bit about, let's talk a little more about what Judge Hinkle found, because I, I believe what he said was that basically the governor wanted to find a reform prosecutor who wasn't following the law. And then Larry Keefe, who is the state's quote unquote public safety czar, did a ask around to cert- selected law enforcement officials. And I think he said, you know, all roads led to you, but he didn't do a thorough investigation. In fact, he, by his own account, I was there when he testified, did not, he said he didn't do a, an investigation. He did a look into, um, so it was as if the governor wanted to find someone that he could target and you turned out to be that someone. 
Is that, am I misinterpreting what the judge, and this is the judge, not Dara saying this. Correct. No, you, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, that was the judge's findings and it was based on a complete record in this case. You know, the judge talked about that there was a lot of time for discovery. There were a lot of documents produced and depositions taken. And throughout all of that, the, this extensive discovery, the governor's office couldn't find a single, single case where I hadn't followed the law, a single example of any misconduct. And that's part of the reason why the judge concluded that this was just a political hit job from the beginning. That was suspended Hillsborough County State Attorney Andrew Warren in an excerpt from the Deeper Dive with Derek Cam podcast, a product of City and State Florida. Hear the full episode wherever you get your podcasts. At the start of this week's Capitol Report, we told you the Florida legislature would be meeting in special session next week. One of the things they'll be debating will be more support for victims of Hurricanes Ian and Nicole. A new report by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration finds climate change helped fuel $18 billion worth of weather-related disasters last year. The most expensive was Hurricane Ian, which made landfall near Fort Myers in September. The annual Florida Climate Conference will be held February 9th, and the main topic will highlight how climate change impacts Florida's waterways. WUSF's Kathy Carter got a preview with Bob Bunting, CEO of Sarasota's Climate Adaptation Center. Bob, before we get into this year's conference, uh, remind us a couple of years ago why you told us that climate change would make storms like Hurricane Ian stronger. The warmer temperatures in the oceans are rocket fuel for tropical storms and hurricanes. And basically, they just suck right off the ocean heat and they can spin up really fast. The other thing is the jet stream has slowed down about 20 to 25 percent, which means the jet streams that equalize the atmosphere are now weaker. That means hurricanes move more erratically and they move more slowly. So Hurricane Ian moved half the normal rate. It was twice as large as a normal hurricane as far as geographical extent. So we now have these super hurricanes that are occurring more often, moving more slowly. So when they hit the coast, they're going to do more damage. One of the topics during this year's conference uh, will focus on the triple threat from water. Tell us a little more. Well, this is really an important theme for us because half of Florida is below 10 feet above sea level. And the rate of sea level rise right now is twice what it was in 1990, which is troubling. So we have the triple threat of further rising sea levels, higher storm surges, like we saw in Fort Myers, Florida, and then we have the inland flooding, which occurs a couple of days after the storm hits due to excessive rainfalls from slower moving hurricanes. So the rain is piling up on the landmass and it's running off into the Gulf of Mexico. And of course, we have the delayed reaction of red tides, which is also water related when you think about it. Could have called it a quadruple threat. Certainly one of the goals of these conferences is to talk about mitigation and solutions. 
Well, we have to start acting like we're working together. Take government as an example. We have all kinds of governments. We have tiny ones. We have city ones. We have county ones. We have state ones. We have federal ones. And so we need to have all governments work together. Every community should be doing the same program, not a hundred different programs. So that would be one thing. The other thing is we have to raise our critical infrastructure because when we have storm surges on top of sea levels that are increasingly rising, those critical links to our way of life are damaged severely. So evacuation routes are really, really important. We have tens of thousands of people living on barrier islands, and we're going to have to get them off those islands in a short amount of time and send them somewhere. Where do we send them? We have to know. Every person should know where they're going when a Category 4 hurricane hits, where they bring their cars. There has to be parking at those locations. And that's the kind of planning that we can and should do now and actually change that plan into action and build these facilities. As you have done annually for the past few years, uh, you will be unveiling a climate forecast. Can you tell us a little bit more uh, about what that might be? What I would like to say is we used to call things freak weather. Freak weather has now become our weather. We're going to see these impacts now for the next 100 years based on what we've already done in the atmosphere and biosphere. What we need to do is to start slowing down the rate of change because if we do that, it gives us more time. The real risk in our society is between now and 2050. And that's where we have to act. If we don't do it by then, then a lot of this is going to be baked in and we're not going to be able to do much about it. It doesn't matter what you think about why this is happening. The fact is it's a measurement. It is happening. And so therefore we need to do something. And we can. That was WUSF's Kathy Carter with Bob Bunting, CEO of the Climate Adaptation Center in Sarasota. This week, the College Board released its final version of a new advanced placement African-American history course that's recently generated blowback. The board says the revisions to the course were already underway prior to Governor Ron DeSantis' administration taking issue with some of the material and rejecting the course. The College Board says it received zero feedback on the course from states and that there was no pathway for them to do so. The only entities that had access to what was contained within the pilot course were the pilot schools, yet somehow the pilot curriculum leaked. Photocopies of parts of the course were circulating online, and the National Review noted it had received a copy of parts of the materials back in September. Even though the final version of the course is out, that's only fueled the controversy. This week, a Leon County Democrat appeared to side with the governor on the course. Leon County Commission Chair Bill Proctor wrote a letter to DeSantis questioning the authority of the college board and suggesting Florida start from scratch. Just because they're the college board does not, in and of itself, make what they recommend, to me, valid, uh, a valid curriculum for African-American history. That's, that's my point. That's been my point all along. 
our history is not trash. No part of our wholesome, comprehensive history is trash, nor is it inferior. So I applaud uh, the college board. That's Tallahassee Pastor R.B. Holmes. The disagreement between the two over the course showed that not everyone is backing the AP's material when it comes to what should be considered as African-American history. A protest at the Capitol over the course's rejection is slated for later this month. Revisions to the course were finalized in December, a month before Governor Ron DeSantis and Florida education officials announced in mid-January that they would reject the course due to its interpretations of contemporary issues in black history, such as the Black Lives Matter movement, black feminism, intersectionality, and gender identity. Listening to Capitol Report from WFSU Public Media, I'm Tom Flanagan. Finally this week, February is Black History Month, and our partners at WUSF in Tampa are featuring the voices of educators, historians, and others in Florida who have been moved by learning a piece of black history. Today we hear from a middle school teacher near Tampa who says teaching black history should take place all year with all children. My name is Larry Davis, and I am a middle school language arts teacher in Apollo Beach. I think it's important, especially for African-American students, to understand that their history did not start at slavery. Because when you, as a student, it's hard to find value in yourself when you look in the mirror, when you start that study at such a violent Uh, start to history, so to speak. And so I think it's important for us to predate our history and educate students on the kings and queens and the innovators and the educators and the artists and civil leaders that predated uh, slavery in this country. I think it's important to weave Black history into your everyday conversations It's important to weave it throughout the entire school year. And I do that by showcasing material that highlights African-Americans. So, for instance, right now I am reading with my sixth grade language arts students a series of books written by Jason Reynolds. Um, It's a track series. And the first book that we read together that excited my sixth grade learners was Ghost. And so we finished that in no time, and they were super excited about reading the next series, which is the second book, Patina. So we're reading that now. And I don't know, maybe it's just been my mission as an educator to to open up the minds and the hearts of, of Black students to get them to understand exactly who they are, because I truly feel like if you don't know who you are, then you won't know where you're going. Black history is not just for African-Americans. It's for all of us. Black history is American history. And it is equally as important for students of all races to know and be able to place value on the African-American experience. And so I think that 
white children, Asian children, Hispanic children, doesn't matter their background. It's important for them to learn because honestly, children are curious. They are curious by nature and they want to know answers to questions. And I would venture to say they want to ask the hard questions. They want to know the why. I would just like to say that really, truly, it's a privilege to be an educator and even more so in this very um, polarized environment that we're in right now. So to have the ability to impact their lives and to help them to kind of clear up some foggy areas in their minds and in their hearts and be that teacher that they will look back on in their lives and say, you know, Miss Davis was hard on me, but she always told me the truth. That was Lorraine Davis, a middle school teacher in Apollo Beach. That audio postcard was produced by WUSF's Carrie Sheridan. Our regular Capitol Report correspondents are Valerie Crowder, Gina Jordan, Lynn Hatter, Regan McCarthy, and Margie Menzel. Thanks also to Dara Cam, Kathy Carter, and Carrie Sheridan. Technical assistance for Capital Report comes from Taylor Cox and I'm Tom Flanagan. Please join us again next week for more reports from the State Capitol. Capital Report is a production of WFSU Public Media in Tallahassee.